Oh, it's been a big week for us at 11FS. We've got some absolutely awesome news. We've won a thing. In fact, we've won more than one thing. 11FS has been recognized in the UK's top management consultancies by the Financial Times. This uh, small publication that has gotten us all super excited in the office. We made the ranking in two categories for the first time ever, and we're so very proud. We've been recognized in digital transformation and financial institutions and services. And that is not all. We're also now one of only three consultancies granted a band one rating by Chambers and Partners in their FinTech 2020 guide. So a great week for us at 11FS and this recognition is absolutely great, but we wouldn't be where we are without our supportive community, partners, clients and friends. So thank you all for your support every step of the way. Okay, on with the show. I'm Lila Liptis, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Could Goldman and Amazon join forces on small business lending? Two more payment giants are consolidating, and banker busted for allegedly filching food. The salaries are not what they used to be, are they? Uh, this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 399 of Fintech Insider. I'm Lita Glyptis, and we're so close to our 400th episode, but for some reason I didn't qualify to be invited to that. So hopefully I'm going <laughs> to guilt the team now because I want to be there to say yes, 400. We've come a very long way in 400 episodes, but also full circle, as you'll know if you listen to Friday's show where we talked about Brexit, my favorite topic, just as we did on the first ever episode of Fintech Insider. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, co-host, and boss, David Beer. How are you doing today, David? Really good. Busy, busy, busy week. Um, I mean, I had to Google what filching means as well, so that was kind of interesting, <laughs> just to make sure it wasn't a typo. But um, but yeah, so I'm really looking forward to getting to that story at some point as well. Can we just skip to that? I mean, the other <laughs> stuff is important. exciting. Yeah, just like an hour of that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uh, bankers are not paid enough, evidently. As always, we're not alone. We're joined by some awesome guests making their Fintech Insider News debut. We have David Rosa, co-founder and CEO at Neat. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us in London all the way from Hong Kong. Can you tell the listeners a bit about Neat and what you do? Sure, thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and congrats for the awards. It's fantastic. Um, okay, so Neat is a, a neobank headquartered in Hong Kong. Uh, we are focused on the SME sector. Um, our mission is to enable the entrepreneur economy, which in other words means that we support entrepreneurs and the young companies, especially with international expansion. And because of where we're headquartered, uh, that international expansion is into Asia. So that's it in a two cents. I mean, a pretty sort of e- sort of. Uh, entrepreneurial market Hong Kong as well, right? You you can't go very far without somebody trying to do something around, right? Pretty much. And also, you know, China right next door. Uh, you know, if you follow the supply chain of pretty much anything you touch, you're going to end up in China somewhere, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of cross-border trade, a lot of international trade. And a uh, very exciting thing to have your perspective on some of the stories we'll be discussing today. Hey, wait, when did you come from Hong Kong? Was I it? knew I was going to get that. <laughs> oh my God, he's <laughs> not got a mask on. Yeah. <laughs> I had. If but you it was, cough, uh, I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've been in Europe, full disclosure, for over two weeks. We were in Paris at the FinTech Forum. Fantastic event, by the way. We're here in London. It's all happening, by the way, at our end. We have a launch uh, event tonight. Uh, we've opened an office in London, so... 
uh, very active, and then we're going to Berlin. So I'm, I'm in Europe for a while now. And spreading awesome. spreading the germs? No. Um, <laughs> no, exciting. Very exciting. And congratulations on your expansion. Thank you. Okay, so Sam Lely, co-founder and CEO of Bipit. I think I just slaughtered your surname, even though I practiced it before. Thank you for joining us. Can you give us a quick overview of what you do and what your team do? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, and yeah, congratulations. The awards are awesome. Um, with Bipit, we make um, interacting with a financial advisor available to everyone. Um, so we operate as an employee benefit. Um, the end user exchanges messages with their own dedicated advisor who can deal with their financial concerns and any problems that they might have. And the company that the employee works for um, pays £10 a month per employee to get this unique workplace benefit. It has instant setup. And we've made this whole interaction with financial advisors 10 times more efficient. Um, but what's super cool is that we have a technical roadmap to make it 100 times more efficient. Oh, that's exciting. Very cool. N- no challenge there then. <laughs> um, and uh, making a welcome return, we have Lois Olorenshaw, Ventures at Nationwide. Welcome back. Thank you for having me back. I think it's my um, third time, which is clearly the charm because this time I get some nice Nordic alcohol. <laughs> this is this is my contribution to proceedings. Thank you, thank you. Uh, okay, let's get on with the show. First up, Goldman Sachs in talks with Amazon about small business loans. This is a story from the FT. And what we're hearing is that the investment bank will reportedly be able to offer loans via Amazon's SME lending platform as early as March. Last week, Goldman CEO David Solomon told shareholders he would move into new areas such as consumer banking and wealth management. Goldman also recently announced it would seek additional banking as a service partnerships in 2020. Both Goldman and Amazon declined to comment on the talks. So as our producer said, let's have a conversation about a potential conversation. What do you make of this? Isn't it like attempt 788,000 on um, Amazon's side to, to move into this space? I mean, they've, they've done lending in various different geographies for quite a while, haven't they, on, in sort of one guise or another. I mean, I actually don't think the Amazon bit is the interesting bit. It's the Goldman Sachs bit. Like, these guys are just on an absolute tear, right? You know, since, uh, you know, Marcus was created and the platform was there and then Apple Card and now Amazon, it's like, you know, if you really... You know, we talk about the banking battlefield a lot, but like if you really want a big bank to partner and do distribution for like gigantic tech organizations, Goldman Sachs seem to have it like absolutely nailed. So how do you use one of the biggest balance sheets on the planet to like really change how actual financial services works? Well, they're just going about it on a tear. I mean, it's it's like they're putting the, the, the fin in tech fin, mm. which has been touted for a long time. Um, because, I mean, if we look at big tech, they've got serious issues with sort of antitrust and tax avoidance coming up. So they sort of bang into a wall with the regulators sometimes. So actually, Goldman's positioning themselves as this kind of banking as a service. We're going to work with, well, it seems like they're going to try and work with all of the FANG stocks. Um, That's super, super interesting. And I think we'll see more of these kind of partnerships from Goldman's going forward. And, and they are, as David says, on a tear. But um, I like to repeat myself. It's it's my, my brand thing. And one of the things I find amazing about Golden, and we've talked about this before in previous podcasts, is that they they boldly go forth and they do things that are differentiating and get them the, the headline inches. But they're not t- cutting into their core business. They're not in any way disrupting themselves. This is not a space they've historically played in. They're not in any way jeopardizing existing revenues. Um 
We have um, consumer ventures currently account for less than 3% of government's revenue, while card and consumer loan balances account for less than 1% of its $993 billion in total assets. I did not know that off by heart, by the way. This was in, written in front of me. I'm not that smart. She's so smart. I know. She knows things. But she does know this thing, that they have been consistently good at playing in other people's backyards. And I must admit, I find that amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, exactly like you say. It's like, while most people are on a defensive strategy, like these guys are like, who's you know, business cases can we spoil in other areas, right? And but if you're going to do anything, you kind of got to have three things in place. You need to have the innovation coming down from the top, um, which Goldman's clearly do. Um, you've got to have a sort of operational system where there are no roadblocks in the way of that innovation. And then the third and kind of the most practical um, piece to actually executing is being able to hire the right sort of tech and product talent. Um, I mean, I remember like one of the first people that I met in the fintech scene about a year ago when I was starting to build BIP. It was a former tech leader, ClearScore, and he'd just taken a job with Goldman's in R&D. And at the time, I was thinking, well, that's kind of strange. But now I look back on that and their ability to hire the best talent um, in engineering and product, I think, is allowing them to execute these super interesting things. Spe- what is speaking this? of which, on that, if you go back to episode 354 of Fintech Insider, we had Bo Hartman on. And Bo was the guy who built out all of the, the Marcus platform that all of this stuff is actually sort of built on. So if you want to go gain some of those insights, go over to there, 354. And he's quite an incredibly insightful and hilarious guy to boot. Um, Lois, I'm going to pick on you to see if you pivot <laughs> away from the question I asked. Uh, no, but I, but I would like uh, the sort of... Um, institutional perspective, do you feel that this will matter? Do you mm. think that this will ever be anything more than play at, at, at the fringes? We know that loan balances make up less than 1% of Goldman's assets. Will this ever be a big space for them? Yeah, I mean, okay, fair enough. It's not a huge part of their business right now. But I think it's definitely a sound bet, right? They're really not missing about their partnering with Apple, they're partnering with Amazon, I kind of see it as them getting their foot in the door of this new space. Um, and I think they're making really clear, deliberate moves to diversify their revenue streams for the future. So, like, for me, it makes perfect sense. And, OK, it's not it's not core cool to their business, like you say, but I think that's in their favour at the moment. Mm. I mean, it's not yet. It's right, like, nothing to lose, right? I mean, yeah. Apple Pay is only 1% of the revenue of Apple, but it doesn't mean they're not putting amazing people and amazing technology to go make it happen. It's, um, you know, when, when you're number one, I mean, this is really where banks have got themselves into, right? Actually, if if they don't continue to innovate and, mush, and move stuff forward, then, you know, the thing that you make all your profit for might be wiped out. Mm. Um, so, you know, spread bet would be good. I, I think there's also this, the seeking uncorrelated type of revenues, right? Let's not forget Gorman is a very powerful trading house, right? And uh, this is very uncorrelated type of returns if you get it right. So it makes a lot of sense from my mind. It's not disrupting absolutely anything. But what about this banking as a service partnership announcement? How core do we think this might become and how transformative? In my mind, um, and I may be controversial in this, right? Banking as a service is very linked to moving money, right? And um, Goldman is not a, um, a traditional commercial bank. Um, it is not a correspondent bank. Um, and as such, I think 
if there is to be more banking as a service, I think it's a lot more into the wealth tech and the trading aspects of it. I don't think um, they, it makes much sense for them to play in the, in the role of you know, international cross-border payments, which a lot of banking as a service is actually pushing into that space. Mm. So the opportunity to me is not the typical one that I would think about yeah. when I'm thinking of, uh, of banking as a service. I would agree with that. And I find myself on this podcast time and again sounding like a fangirl for Goldman, which I never <laughs> thought would happen in my younger years. But the reality is they have, to your point, David, no reason to play in the shallow waters of a, a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. They're not a traditional commercial house. They're not a traditional retail house. So they don't have to do any of the hygiene stuff. Will we see something extremely creative that plays right into the fattier bit of this equation? Mm. I wouldn't think they would enter the race if they didn't intend to win it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, though, to, to try and make money off something that you would have done anyway. You know, that's sort of been... You've heard me say that a lot, leader. It's like one of my, one of my mantras, right? So actually, I mean, if you look at um, BlackRock with what they've done with Aladdin, like they were creating that platform anyway. Therefore, they created it so good that it would be good for other people. I mean, it's the story about how AWS came about, right? So if by making the platform that Bo put in place with Goldman Sachs to support Marcus, that they can now monetize that in so many other ways and use that to release their balance sheet as well. It's just... Why it, wouldn't you? Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? Like if we can, if you can now make money from your competitors, well, they're making money as well that you're making money. It's like, this seems like the perfect crime to me. That's right. That's absolutely right. Well, watch this space. Interesting things to come. Worldline to buy Ingenico for $8.6 billion. The acquisition will create the world's fourth largest payment firm. That shouldn't be exciting. And then you look at $8.6 billion and you pay attention. The deal consists of 81% stock and 19% cash. It will save Worldline an expected 250 billion euros over the next four years. The deal is expected to go through in Q3 of this year. What do we make of that? Dang, that's a lot of money, right? I think that's the thing that stands out. I mean, we're getting a bit desensitized. I think 2020 is the year that millions becomes billions, right? Because essentially with everything that we've seen with, you know, the the acquisitions that obviously Visa have been making recently and various different things, it's just it's just an amazing amount of money, isn't it? But it just shows actually like base level payments infrastructure is worth a bob or two, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the acquisition is a lot of money, but it's going to save them two hundred and fifty billion euros over I the next four years. I think it might actually be million. I think it's the typo. I'm pretty sure it's million in the article. Yeah, because uh, that would be surprising. Whew. That, yeah, I was like, I mean, that sounds like a good investment at that point. Like, I mean, I'm like, 8. how is anyone like, saving that much money? Yeah. Why were you spending that much? Oh, well, that is an entirely different conversation. <laughs> um, the thing the thing that goes back to David's point is that, that we are becoming slightly desensitized to those numbers. And the fact that you're looking at that ticket for what will not even be the biggest payments company in the world is is quite crazy. I mean, Are we excited? Do we think that... And I'm coming from a place where I I have made a lot of wrong um, guesses in the past. But I expected a certain degree of decentralization, which sort of happened. And then I expected quite a lot of people to go out of business, which hasn't happened, and then regrouping after that. Um, so this is sort of skipping the, the cleaning out phase that I had expected wrongly. What do we make of this? What do we think we'll do to the landscape? I mean, any time when 
a bunch of very large organizations start buying each other and consolidating down to very few big organizations, you start worrying about it. It's like if it was, you know, trade across countries and there's only one person owning it, then if one person can start owning the the, the rails and start setting the prices around it, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good and thing. And we are but. definitely looking at a very high level of consolidation in giant entities in the payment space. Now, the, the obvious explanation is... It's less profitable. Scale is where you're going to get your your margins to look a little bit healthier. But what does it mean from a consumer and landscape perspective? I think they're consolidating because of the the climate. So these companies, you've asked twice, is this exciting? I'm not excited. (laughs) I don't think that these companies are the future. I think that payments are definitely about to, if not in the very near term, then in the short to medium term are about to undergo a massive overhaul and payments in terms of consumers' lives are, I think, about to change radically. And I think that this is a smart move. It'll buy them some time, probably. But ultimately, I think they're still in danger. And, you know, I guess it depends on how agile they can be and how quickly they can complete the merger to actually save money and to get rid of um, any kind of, like, replication, duplication that they're going to have. All of that stuff is still to be seen. And a very good point. And will it buy them $8.6 billion worth of time? Um, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's to be seen. Do you think we'll see more? Who's next? Yeah, I mean, this whole sort of, this overarching threat of th- fintech and this kind of the older payments players being under constant pressure to cut back on costs and bolster their digital offerings, it just kind of feels like these, these sort of large synergistic M&A deals just give me so much anxiety when I think about the actual logistics of putting these two companies together and getting that synergy out of it. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, the mind boggles, really. It's a very, it's a very um, interesting point you raise because they are anticipating a, a very chunky number of, of um, savings as a result of this deal. But in my many years as a corporate drone, I saw a lot of M&A activity. I saw a lot of um, acquisitions and mergers that mostly left immense amounts of value on the table or dragged out the integration so much as to almost cost more than, than it delivered. Very rarely were those acquisitions cost-saving exercises. So to see that as a the leading reason for doing it makes you wonder, have you not seen what happened to the other guys? Mm. Do we really think that an acquisition with, to your point, the the hard work and graft that it will take to bring things together could actually deliver the goods in terms of a saving. I mean, I don't know really where we are with the the FIS and the WorldPay um, um, acquisition. Um, it would be interesting to see what kind of progress they've made on putting those two companies together. And maybe there's a read across to whether this is actually something that can be executed. Mm. I mean, there's new players coming to this space as well, isn't there? Obviously, I mean, RTGS with Nick Ogden and various different things. But I mean, it, it is interesting to see whether the big organizations can basically group together to find protection from new organizations coming in. But I agree with you. It's like, actually, when you look at the, I mean, ROI, there seems to be lots of I, but not much R. <laughs> Right, and that's going to be interesting to see where they find it eventually. Right. Well, it it just uh, goes against everything we've been talking about as established wisdom for the last fifteen years. You need to overhaul your infrastructure, you need to retrain or replace your people, and you need to rethink your processes. A merger of two entities of that size means now that you have those three problems times two. 
And chances are you're going to rationalize before you streamline. And every day that passes puts you two days behind your future self. Um, so it, it goes against what we have been talking about as an industry for a long time. And yet, um, to Lois's point, it is the trend we've been seeing in this space. Mm. Bring the book of business in and let's think about the rest later. But, and we may be flogging a dead horse, nobody's excited by this story, but do they have other options? I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, there's there's a lot of people, I mean, if this now makes the fourth largest payments, uh, you know, there's there's know. like a, a fifth, sixth, They're seventh. They're not like, even winning, yeah. though. So, well, that's the thing. To make such a big play and be in fourth is an interesting position, isn't it? You know, because, I mean, there's uh, clearly there's prizes for fourth, but uh, it's not like the Premier League or something. But You get uh, a chocolate. Fine. That's a that's very it. expensive chocolate. <laughs> uh, moving on. Revolut moves European payments to Ireland and Lithuania. This is from The Telegraph. In the wake of Brexit, sob, Mm -mm. the digital challenger will move to a three-target licensing model. Its global headquarters will remain in London, but Revolut will serve Central and Eastern European clients through its Lithuanian bank license. The company is currently applying for an EMI license in Ireland, and the goal is to put Western European clients on the Irish license. Revolut Banking CEO Richard Davis also announced that the company will launch a credit product at some point in 2020, so busy few months ahead. Obviously, the the change staves off the loss of passporting rights um, as a result of Brexit, sob. But what do we think of this? What do we think of the dual license model? What do we think of their move? I mean, am I missing something here? Why why three licenses? I understand UK and have a European license to passport, but why... Ireland and Lithuania. So, so I think they've used Lithuania initially as an e-money license provider. They're using Ireland as a full banking license to do full banking products. Uh, and then they obviously have their headquarters and their presence here, so we'll need to have some sort of licensing. So, but, but yeah, it's a little bit like you know, there's the answer without all of the the why to a certain degree in terms of all of the the licensing. And obviously, I mean, if an organization then ends up having to adhere to, you know, three different regulatory pressures and all of the stuff that kind of comes with it. But I think this is almost like regulatory debt, really, in the way that we've seen with technology debt. It's and it will spit out technology debt without a doubt, right? Completely. But they picked the easiest way to get to market quickest, which was an e-money license from Lithuania, and now are like figuring out what the best way is to match what their strategy is, which I guess is smart. I mean, Revolut and by no means sort of slowing down, are they? I'd sort of say if you look at the amount of customers that they're sort of bringing in and the the quality of the people that are kind of coming into that organization as well, like the fact that somebody like Richard is there, who, I mean, he's been on the show a bunch of times before, but his background from HSBC and TSB and whatnot, it sort of sign points to like a different type of organization that we've seen in the past, really. Absolutely, and, and, and about time it probably was, right? Um, it's an interesting one because you can, to your point, David, totally understand the sequence in which they did it, and they have been very clever in the past about finding the fastest way to market and then pivot. What I find very interesting is the the thinking that must have gone into retaining the three-license model. It gives them optionality, definitely. I see why they're not moving imminently, at least, out mm. of the UK. But theoretically, the Lithuanian license should have been adequate. And yet, they're making a very active choice, which others like Starling have signaled they're going to make towards moving to, to, the, Irish, um, to the Irish regulator. And I'm just going to put this out there for, for people's reactions. But while the EU was still a th- 
Thank you. I have not qualified for settled status, by the way, so I'm personally very sad. Um, <clears throat> Wait, what? Have you got to? Have you got to go? Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> When's that happening? They'll, they'll, they'll let me. us know. Um, I think I think I'll be fine. Somehow I think I'll be fine. Okay. Um, but um, the the reality was that while the UK market was in the EU, part of the reason why pick, people picked it was that it was a very credible regulator with a whole host of activity that came with it. Lithuania opened up the doors for reasons that made immense amounts of sense and gave easy access, but that hasn't come with the corresponding maturity of the regulatory framework and the regulator's approach. Ireland, on the other hand, has not necessarily opened the door the same way, but has a slightly more mature, slightly more demanding regulator. Do you think I'm hallucinating in thinking Revolut went, I'm going to go be a grown-up? David is making a you are hallucinating face and you also didn't tell me you're leaving the country so I hate you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably very, very sensible. I think if you look at, uh, I mean, like you say, the FCA has been a bit of a gold seal across Europe from a regulatory perspective. So maybe this is, I, I wonder if potentially the if you really want to play in these territories, then you have to have more of a, you know, a robust regulatory approval. Makes, makes an absolute sense in terms of what it's doing. And uh, I do think, though, I think it is a, you know, um, startups move fast and break things, right? It's like, what's the quickest, cheapest way of getting to market? Um, but actually now that they have, what, 7 million users, then yeah. maybe it's time to sort of grow up a little bit and, uh, you know, be regulated where it makes sense. Can I be controversial for a second? Please. Because Please do. I've been observing this entire Brexit, um, you know, saga from Hong Kong. And, and you know, I'm out, I'm outside the woods, right? Please so. don't ask us to explain it. Like, don't, uh, make me, don't make me cry. I won't, I won't. And, uh, and excuse my ignorance if, I, if I'm going to say something that is, that is obvious, but... Every single person I talk to here in Europe is basically drawing the conclusion that that's it, passporting is gone. It's not 100% sure that it's gone, yeah? And what if this entire thing is a complete distraction, right? So I understand the pressures from all the different stakeholders, starting with the investors, and, you know, you need to have contingency, no question. But what if actually this entire thing is a distraction? And that's why, by the way, we may be wrong, and I may be wrong by, by extension. That's why we moved into London now. People are so focused on like, oh my God, you know, it's the end of London, it's the end of the UK and so on and so forth. The way we look at it actually is that the UK, and it's really London, sorry to say, right, um, as a financial centre, is really an offshore centre more than anything else. And mm -hmm. I think increasingly London will continue to position itself as an offshore centre, which is the same positioning as Hong Kong, as Singapore. And, and so we're looking at it from a very, very different angle. So please tell me, are there deadlines? Is there a guarantee that there's not going to be passporting available? There is anymore? no guarantee, and that's the problem, that we have gone through now a fourth year of uncertainty and open-endedness, which makes business planning and contingency planning and budget balancing, particularly, okay, Revolut's a very well-capitalized startup, but for, for the companies that need to make some guesses and some bets, the uncertainty and the lack of deadlines, to your very valid point, has been what has um, has created anxiety. Actually, I don't think that anyone is saying it's the end of London. I think people expect a, a change to the type of business we get out of London. I'm not sure what you mean by offshoring. It's a very expensive offshoring destination. Um, I, I think I think you mean from like a like Singapore. Like Singapore is like a it's like a Galapagos Island like tax haven type and, and actually like if 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 London maybe not London not London on its own but if the UK could become a Singapore off the coast of Europe that would be an amazing thing to go uh, like yeah, if yeah. Boris Johnson pulls that off then I'll like 
you know, can someone tweet my at shoes. Him? That, that's my oh. view. That's very much my view. And and what I mean by offshoring is actually the statistics. Mm-hmm. Companies House is the largest incorporator in the world. Six hundred thousand new companies every year. Yeah. Right. And it's going to grow. Yeah. I don't. I don't think anyone here disagrees with you. Actually, well, we don't. We we don't expect, even though our personal views on Brexit are, you know, pause sob. Um, and I personally do expect it will have a socio economic impact on the country. I don't think it will be the end of London in any way, and I don't think it will be the end of fintech in London. I do expect we will see some change, though, and definitely some movement of talent. Because, for instance, the stuff that will be happening in Dublin for Starling, for Revolut, for many others, would have been here. So there will be a a split, and there will be a change. That doesn't mean that there won't be a regeneration of sorts and a different flavor some years down the line. But the fact that none of this move to Ireland would be happening mm. if it hadn't been for Brexit, I think is a, is a given. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think it's the, the worrying thing is not uh, like there doesn't, there's not a shortage of companies wanting to come here. There's not a shortage of capital investment coming in and plowing into the capital particularly, but it's just whether the talent is being given a, a good enough reason to go to Paris or Berlin or wherever. And then we've got a, a weird double whammy here with not just the Brexit situation, but like tax like IR35 is like a, wait I'm not welcome here and also I'm going to get taxed like there's like some pretty pretty big magnets being pulled by and this is you know other other geographies within the sort of European Union and this is where Hong Kong and Singapore were smart was actually making it much more advantageous from a tax perspective or you know from an entrepreneurial perspective that actually it became the best place in that region to do those things with the regulatory environment with all of those things so let me throw this question out there to to everyone but in, including you David remember the day after brexit because i was crying a lot um there were there were posters on minivans around central london um, advertising Berlin as an alternative fintech um, fintech hub. It's like that's enterprise. That's fast. Um, the reality is, to to your point, other David, we haven't seen that exodus, and the the movements we are seeing are actually more driven by either market access, so people are not moving out of London, they're moving into Asia, or, uh, or as we discussed now, uh, regulatory provisioning, and people are happy to operate a multi license model. Do we think? that we will see a transition for reasons other than regulatory access? I think the only other thing would be on the talent side of things. I I think you could start seeing, you know, whether it's Berlin. I mean, Paris have done a pretty, you know, the whole sort of Station F uh, kind of approach that they've got. But I I think it's... um, I mean, like we not wanting to plug the documentary, but like as we sort of talked about on the the Eleven Years documentary, it's like uh, the regulatory climate here is one of the factors. Um, and actually, every other geography that's trying to attract that talent, while it will, while it could get a sort of a, a diluted version of that talent, it still doesn't have all of the other elements that would be required there. So, I mean, France has some issues, shall we say, from a, a governmental perspective that they probably need to deal with as well. And labor legislation is challenging. Yeah. They have things to deal with. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of problems. I there's nowhere in Europe, I feel, that has all of this stuff kind of worked out in a way that could then tip the balance. Um, also, we should sort of remember, I mean, you know, the UK, to your, to your point, David, the UK is still the, you know, one of the biggest financial markets on the planet, right? So that magnet is strong for money. Um, and that will still keep going. Yeah, I think realistically, like, London is going to retain its reputation and its pull, and that will certainly apply to regulation 
no matter what happens with Brexit and the transition period, and no one can say it. But I just think it's a huge shame. Like you said, it is a distraction. And, you know, maybe nothing will come of it, or maybe some people will make a wrong bet and something will come of it and they'll have made the wrong regulatory bet. Mm. And I just think, like, you know, maybe nothing will happen, maybe things will be fine. But all of the effort and attention that we've had to expend on this is so wasted in London. Yeah. So and, it's, and it's all a bit kind of anticlimactic in a way. I mean, if, if you saw the feed of the inverted commas celebration on Parliament Square, um, it, it was all, I mean, it was kind of shambolic in a way. And this whole thing, we've been through a number of years of all of this anxiety and um, confusion. And it, it kind of feels like, you know, where have we actually got to? Um, and it would be a real shame if London does become less of a welcoming prospect to talent. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I, I can completely agree with your point. It's like, hey, we're like three laps ahead, so we should stop for a bit. And it's like, hmm. Or not. Maybe let's just win <laughs> the race. Could we not? Yeah, let's just win that race. <laughs> yeah. On that slightly sobering note, uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back very shortly. Before we get back into the show, we wanted to let you know that Finnovate Spring is happening in San Francisco on May 27th to 29. Built around live seven-minute demos of the latest fintech innovations, Finnovate Spring is the West Coast premier fintech event. At the event, you can network with more than 1,200 senior-level attendees from the Midwest and Western United States, Latin America, APAC, Canada, Australia, and beyond. You can gain insights from more than 120 expert speakers on the future of finance, and you can meet some of the most exciting people in the fintech space. For more information, visit finnovatespring.com and use discount code 11FS to get a 20% discount on your registration. Again, that code is 11FS. Additionally, speaking of the recognition we received this week, we'd like to give back some of our own. The 11FS Research and 11FS Pulse teams have been hard at work identifying outstanding products, services and brands within the financial services industry for the third annual 11FS Pulse Awards. The team spent all day, every day, immersed in user journeys across the fintech space and are uniquely positioned to judge which products, services and brands are leading the way with their propositions. Okay, back to the news. And after Brexit, some more international news. Remedly starts US banking service aimed at immigrants. This is a story from Finextra. The remittance company has launched Passbook, which offers bank accounts to first-generation adult immigrants. Prospective customers can register digitally using um, an ITIN or Passport Passbook, uh, Passbook does not require a social security number, which is quite revolutionary for the US. The service includes a Visa debit card and features no foreign transaction fees or account fees. The move comes as Remit Lee's $135 million funding round last summer. What do we make of that? Dang. A again, a lot of money. $135 million funding rounds. Like, that is pretty good going, isn't it? I mean, it just shows, like, from an immigrant population within the U.S. market, um, you know, still a thing. Wanting, you know, not wanting to go back to the Brexit thing, but false promises by Mr. Trump. <laughs> Sorry, the still president, right? He didn't get impeached yesterday, did he? That, I think he somehow no, managed to evade yeah, it, yeah. It was did you not see his tweet this morning? The victory of the American people against the fake impeachment? Did he really? Oh. oh. See, sob, <sighs> sigh. <laughs> Politics, yeah. 
But, it's, but, but I mean, on an upbeat note, which is not my natural state, that kind of, um, of funding round for financial inclusion and for a topic that I mean, we, we joke about, I don't joke because I'm an immigrant, but other people joke about how we don't have a problem with immigrants because look at the US. And, and the reality is things have gotten harder here. But the, the depth of the institutional challenge the US is dealing with and the denial to deal with it, even though it's core to its economy... It's second to none. This won't solve quite a lot of the systemic issues because it doesn't require a national security number and I bet you it won't help with getting one. But allowing these folks to not be unbanked, quite exciting. And the fact that you can raise money for financial inclusion in the US is always refreshing when it happens. And it's great that they've raised this money for what appears to be quite an elegant solution to part of this problem. So, you know, being able to use a passport, to your point, leader, about not needing a social security number to open the account. And I think it, the, the balances are insured. Um, it's all great. Uh, no fees on FX for transferring money um, back to a home country, potentially. Um, but, I mean, if this is a free account, where's the revenue being generated from? Are the spreads really wide on the FX in order to actually provide the service? Mm. I mean, it's interesting because it's, I mean, the the population in uh, the US is like a really weird market, right? You know, like you talk about kind of immigration, but this like uh, immigrants as a, as a market who have maybe less access to evidencing various different things in terms of uh, their, their, the uh, amount of money that they're making or addresses or whatever. But I mean, Ross Gallagher talked about this on the show last week. 11% of the population of NYC is unbanked and 22% is underbanked of New York. Like this is not like some, you know, southern state random, you know, nowhere connectivity type vibe. Like this is like one of the most major cities on the planet. So um so I think the the opportunities for these things while they're focusing it really on immigrants is like anybody who really wants to kind of get into the banking system, which if it's 22% of New York, it's going to be that times, you know, a few in, uh, you know, various other places around the US. So, I mean, this could be for such a big place as America. Turns out it's a big thing. This is like millions and millions and millions of people that this can aim at. No, absolutely. And and the the immigration challenge is not the only one in the US for for the citizens who are unbanked. Um, the FX component will probably not be very exciting, but, but it gives access. Do you feel that... Um, this type of solution has resonance in Europe where our population of unbanked um, peoples, even immigrants, is actually really low. Mm. It's not, not a problem, but it's definitely not that size of problem. Oh, I'm really impressed by how much they raised to tackle the problem because I've looked at quite a bit of financial inclusion um, issues and startups in the last couple of years. And I think there's definitely a sense that people who've recently moved to a country tend to fall through the cracks in the UK of the banking system for the reasons that David just talked about. Um, but ultimately, it's kind of seen as a niche market and a market that's difficult to make money from. And so I think in a lot of ways, it gets overlooked because, you know, no one's willing to go in and solve that problem for the amount of value that you can reasonably generate, um, which is why I think the story is so interesting, because Clearly, someone in the U.S. has recognized this as something where actually it is worth solving. Mm. I mean, that's that's an interesting point because it's where anywhere where mass market is obviously middle market, where your cost efficiencies and your uni economics can actually make those things make sense. 
But the bigger the geography, the bigger the niches, right? And actually, this niche in the US is huge. I mean, you should say like people like Moniz here have done mm. pretty well at actually sort of getting a, a decent sort of market share, you know, a, a user group in terms of what they're doing. But um, again, the the bigger the niche, the bigger the opportunity would be. And the US has a, a major problem with this. It's an interesting one because if you take a step back and look at the transformative work we're all trying to do in the industry in ways big and small. There are certain pieces that we're not touching. I was speaking to um, a group of people recently who are middle-class immigrants into the UK, educated, came with jobs that would pay well. You wouldn't think that they would have problems getting a bank account. And yet it was part of a piece of research we were doing, and hence there were so many in one place. But um, the reality was a lot of these folks came over and either lived in corporate accommodation for a while or got um, um, the sort of apartment where all bills are paid because it made the easier for them to project what their cost of living would be. But most bank accounts, including most of the challengers, require um, a bill as proof of address. Um, and And you think, oh, my God, we've transformed so much and yet – being of the space, you're blind to so much. Uh, we have a very, very long way to go. And maybe there's quite a lot to this solution that goes beyond the the sort of headline immigration and, and financial inclusion. But do you think there's portability for solutions like that, but particularly with a around in the, what was it, 137 million? You'd expect it to go beyond the states with that kind of money, but where would it go to? So I'd like to share some experience from from Asia. Right? Um, in Asia, there's there's a very clear use case for this type of solution where wallets have really dominated and continue to dominate. Um, and the target audience is the overseas domestic helpers, um, uh, like from the Philippines, from Indonesia. It's a pretty big market across the region, in fact, probably across the world. Um, and the pain point that these wallets solve for those users is really the remittance. And the remittance at a, at a really good exchange rate and it's a race to the bottom. So the the real question is what we were discussing before is how do you monetize something like this? Um, does the solution really help you, the foreign worker, um, integrate within the financial ecosystem that you're in, in, your, in the country that you've immigrated to? Not really. That's not what we're observing in uh, in Asia, at least. But it does, you know, help you to remit money back home really cheap. Let's not forget also that, at least from Asia, the very large majority of these domestic helpers uh, are paid in cash. Mm. Okay, so it's really a question of topping up that cash into the wallet and remitting it in the cheapest way possible back home. So, so do you think that is? It's it's actually the it's a smart investment to create a start point that would be the end point being remittance back home. Correct, but then there's a race to the bottom because there's not typically only one player, at least mm. in, in my part of the world, right? So, um, but, it, but I guess it's them moving up the value chain, though, right? It's uh, to, to your point, it's like um, big offshoring companies buying management consultancies because they can move closer to where the problem yeah. is, which means they can own more of the value chain. So, I mean, that strategy makes a lot of sense. I mean, so, it's, it's either a, a genuine cause-driven business, in which case they're trying to solve the problem and that's it, or to the point... You're both raising some, Dave. It, it it doesn't. The economics of it sadly don't work mm. unless you really drive infrastructure costs down dramatically. Well, I was going to say that that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, many big organizations can't face into these types of things because the unit economics of actually serving these customers is just off the charts. You know, if like if a a current account costs you like 
$300 to run, you've got bugger all chance of actually making any profit out of these guys. Therefore, you just don't even bother approaching them. So, But I think I think that will change, though. I think as core banking systems and architecture and all these things kind of change, then actually people can drive that unit economics down to then start serving people that they just couldn't afford to serve before. You know? Music to my ears, David. <laughs> right, moving on to the other side of the world. Australian fintech split on screen scraping band. Um, in a Senate hearing about financial technology, the director of the RegTech Association told the government that screen scraping should be banned. The head of corporate development at Australian fintech Airwallex agreed, calling the practice bad technology. On the other side, Ray's Invest's general counsel spoke up in defense of screen scraping, saying a ban would hamstring the fintech industry. Not true. Companies such as Zero NZ and Macquarie Bank engage in the practice. Well, a lot of traditional organizations engage in the practice. And it's a terrible practice. There, I've said it. Does anyone here disagree with me? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, the simple fact that um, if you are screen scraping, having to store the login credentials of the end user is obviously a security issue because if anything were to go wrong, then um, it's, you know, all hell breaks loose. Um, so, I mean, being able to um, use an open banking style system where the technical um, um, procedure is to exchange an encrypted token is far more um, secure. But also you've got the consent journey as well. So with open banking, the end user can remove consent, typically with just a couple of taps of the button. We use open banking ourselves at Bipid, and that's the experience. With screen scraping, um, you know, a company has your credentials and can scrape data. And also I think, you know, uh, open banking means also the ability to move money. Scraping is really getting data, of course, the perceived value at least in data, right? But it's not as deep. It's a very shallow type of value add in which gets crowded pretty quickly. I think um, as as the, 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 the recovering banker in me remembers why we did screen scraping back in the day because I'm both a recovering banker and very old. And I remember, I remember it was okay because it was the way everyone did it. And there was a lack of awareness on the consumer side and an absolute lack of malice on, on the producer side. But knowing what we know now and having the technology we have now and having the maturity around how much of your data is being shared, because it's not to your point, yes, your, your consent cannot be withdrawn with the same ease, but also you're oversharing. And when you consented to your data being shared via screen scraping, A, you didn't know the difference, and B, you didn't realize that you actually shared quite a lot more than what you needed to. Um, but what I find interesting is that when we went through that journey in Europe with PST2, nobody was penalized for errors of the past. It was it was what we thought was acceptable. It was what we knew is what we did. Like a screen scoping amnesty. Yeah, like yes. We were like handing in our weaponry. It was great. <laughs> exactly. But now let's stop doing that, children. Um, but after all these years, and with Australia having close, pretty closely followed on on the heels of the of the European journey on PSD two and CMA, to have someone come out and defend a practice that is outdated and actually, other than being easier than overhauling your infrastructure, has nothing to commend it, mm. is quite unexpected. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, with with everything that's happened, it feels like a. Um it feels like watching a movie from the past, doesn't it? You know, to a certain degree. I, I think the thing that, um, I mean, all of the conversations that we had, <clears throat> I don't know, 10, no, maybe not 10 years ago. Yeah, 10, 10 years, years ago, ago. Uh, about this. I mean, it's like, 
liability is always the biggest thing that any organization sort of faces into, which is why I think a, a big banking organization would want this to be banned because in the terms and conditions of everybody's internet banking usage is like, don't share these things. Like, do not give people this password. Not even do, me. Yeah, do not give people the, like, if we ring up and say we're like, we're, you know, there's a problem, don't give us these things, you know. Um, so the idea that then people give these things away but then the liability still sits with the organizations. And if anything goes wrong and everybody takes your money out of your bank, like shortage of like the watchdog turning up and like, you know, we're not going to give you that money back type thing. So I, I think from a consumer's perspective, we you know, in, in Europe, we've moved on so far from this, like you say, with consent and everything that's there. So I, I feel bad for them that, I mean, open banking is not a thing. Exposure of APIs is not a thing. Therefore, trying to limit your liability by going, hey, don't do that thing we said you should, shouldn't should do at any circumstances sort of does make sense, mm. but only if you're going to actually provide some sort of sensible alternative, right? So, I mean, it just sort of feels like the Australian market just needs to get on with open banking and like make it a thing, right? Because they've taken a, an interesting approach in Australia, haven't they? They've gone down the route of open data first, so being able to connect with the utility companies. And open banking seems to have taken a sort of backseat, which is why we see ourselves sort of a little bit further along the journey mm. with the move from screen scraping to open banking than, than, than they do. But, I mean, I mean, it's going to be super exciting when we actually get to this situation where we connect all pieces of data so the consumer is able to um, take their data and deploy it um, with some super interesting use cases. Because, mm. I mean, the direction that the world is going to is autonomous finances, really, because as soon as you can connect the bank accounts, the credit cards and the pension providers and the mortgage providers and the utilities, then that data is really, really powerful. Absolutely. And uh, what this feels like to me is the the beginning of this process and journey back here in the UK when the fintech wave started gathering speed. And, and the difference between then and now, the biggest difference, was that the banks thought they were in control of the conversation and the timing. And that, in my career, has been the biggest shift in mentality and engagement. Everything that has shifted on the back of it in terms of big bets and, and change in dialogue has been on the back of that. We're not setting the tone. We're not setting the pace. <clears throat> to read this feels like the microcosm of Australian banking, which is four banks and five cousins in the regions, um, has a, a sort of an echo of that still, that mm. we can control this conversation. Uh, but... But leaving that aside for a second, do you think he's right? Do you think that the transition from screen scraping to a sort of consent-driven API-based data sharing infrastructure has actually had any impact other than a positive one um, on the fintech scene in Europe? Well, I do think that if Australia goes down the same route, there's a lot they could learn from the EU ban. Um, I think to your point about the sort of discourse changing and the power structures dynamics changing, that's true. And I don't think it's any secret that banks will talk about creating APIs as being, you know, potentially challenging and expensive and fintechs are often dissatisfied with the results. Like all of that kind of discourse is really valuable. And if Australia go down this route, which I think we're all agreed that they should, then there's there's definitely a lot that they can look at in terms of unintended consequences over here. Absolutely. I think I think the difficulty on this is um, 
what we've seen, what we've probably seen within in Europe and what we've seen within the UK with open banking is uh, forced adoption of something that everybody talked about doing for a decade. You know, if you kind of look at open banking, every organization talked about exposing APIs for such a long period of time, but nobody did it because it lost them control to a certain degree. You know, actually by opening up your infrastructure and actually almost kind of you know it's like running a uh, running a car uh, like a 1980s car at like red line do you know what i mean it's it's the it's, that's the difficulty that you're kind of facing into and while um i think a lot of it departments have been so grateful because open banking coming after uh mobile banking has been a great thing to see because many of the things that actually have been exposed to deal with mobile banking when it comes to APIs and all the capability that they would need to provide those services up to different interfaces has actually facilitated just a, a, a almost an evolution of that to kind of get to what open banking is. But we should we should definitely remember is like nobody would have done this unless they had to. No bank on the planet. I mean, I think BBVA were one of the few ones globally who opened up APIs before they had to. Uh, nobody did this because they wanted to. Everybody did it because they had to. But that doesn't mean it's a mass. It, that doesn't mean it's not a massive benefit to the ecosystem. But if you look at the, I mean, anything like the big regulatory changes that have happened over the last like twelve years now, mm-hmm. have been to create competition within the European Union and create competition within the UK market, not because the big organisations wanted it to happen. And that's what's missing in the Australian context: the the embracing of the open banking. Language has been that it has been a loose embrace, and it hasn't been pushed in a way that will force people to do it. Because you're absolutely right; in the UK, it has happened either because the regulator demanded it, or in in the case of one of the organisations I worked in, because the biggest corporate client demanded it. And you know, the regulator or your biggest client say, "I want," and you say, sure. "Here it is." I mean, but being forced into that obligation. Um, I mean, I was with a, a retail bank today, and that's sort of been a catalyst for them to look inward and actually explore using APIs between the siloed data within their organization because many retail <coughs> banks have current account holders. Some of them may be really, really dormant, and they have mortgage holders and they have savers, and all of that data is not connected. So I think. We're going to see over the next few years a really big move with the the large retail banks towards this API-driven microservices connecting up that siloed data. Because, I mean, it's nuts. If I've been a a Barclays customer personally for 20 years, um, I should be able to walk in there and they know everything about me and I should be able to get a mortgage application sorted, not start from um, ground zero and They know put everything it about you, but they won't tell themselves anything <laughs> That's about it, you. That's <laughs> it, exactly. Um, and, and that has been a challenge for many a reason, and, and I don't think we will be seeing those systems being cleaned up um, quickly. I, I think, to David's point, there is an element of control in the way I used to run the world. There's an element of the data not being as it should be. There's an element of the cost, to Lois's point, and not knowing how to monetize it elsewhere, particularly as it drives your your, your unit economics sort of out the window. Um But while some banks are genuinely trying to invest in their infrastructure and visualize new value for the clients, some are going down a very different path. Texas Capital Bank reveals account that pays air miles. The commercial bank will offer a digital savings product called Basque, as in Basque in the glory of. It will give customers American Airlines, oh my God, American Airlines advantage miles instead of interest on their savings. 
Rewards will be given based on average monthly balances, and customers will have other opportunities to earn bonus miles by opening accounts or giving feedback. Are you excited or are we scraping the bottom of the barrel? I mean, it's interesting that people are giving up on having any savings just in order to get that one flight they want to go to that place, right? It's That would just be such an, you know, it takes savings to be such a short-term view. Or maybe, I mean, maybe the amount of air miles that they get makes it a very long-term view. I don't know. But um, this is quite terrifying. I mean, Amex points and that type of thing is one thing because you can exchange it for a bunch of different stuff. But being in a situation where you can only spend your savings on American Airlines flights. And I bet just, they'll be domestic as well. Yeah. I mean, it. I don't know. It's, uh, this is not a good thing in my mind. In a world where we're trying to get people to act Financial more responsibly conduct. and, you know, save some money and stuff. Yeah. It, it feel, You're absolutely right. And it feels uh, to a certain degree um, irresponsible. But my first reaction was that it feels really unimaginative. And I do appreciate that. Interest rates remain stagnant. The bank cannot offer anything exciting. How can they differentiate? And they go there. Mm, I don't know. It's, I mean, what next? It's going to be like, um, you know, save for that Gucci bag. It's like, you know, it just, I don't know. It, feels, it just feels like a very bad idea. I'd, I can't imagine this will be take, t- taken up very much. To offset this, in the same week, Dutch challenger Bunk have planted 40,000 trees based on a give-back program launched in November to plant a tree for every $100 customers spend. Wow. That feels more in keeping with the times, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not inviting people to pump kind of all sorts of stuff into the this sort of uh, ozone layer. but So instead- spend, so an, a savings account that wants you to spend and pollute. Mm. Or... Trees. Mm. Mm. So it's either, trees. It's either I, I sort of let my money sit there and erode with inflation just so I can get that occasional upgrade to business class, or I'm doing something good for the environment. Um, yeah, I think there's there's not much to choose between there. Well done, Bunk. Yeah, so, so th- this, this room in London thinks Texas could go out and plant some trees. Friendly suggestion. And now, the moment you have all been waiting for. Traders suspended for allegedly stealing sandwiches. Citigroup has suspended its head of high-yield bond trading in Europe, the Middle East and Africa, the head of high-yield bond trading. Paris Shah is alleged to have swiped sandwiches from the canteen at the bank's London headquarters. Wait, he did, left did you the say bank last high month. Yield? Did you say high yield trading? Yeah. High yield, yeah. I said. Oh, did you? Oh. I was like high, but high also yield high trading. Yield. I was like what high is... yield. They can afford whatever they like. <laughs> I know, right? That sounds fancy, doesn't it? So, Shah, and I find it so surprising that the BBC has actually named this person. I know. Shah has been making more than one million pounds per year trading junk bonds. Exciting. He had previously worked at HSBC for seven years. I don't know why we needed to know that, but there we are. The suspension comes just before City pays out its annual bonuses, so he's doubly sad. (laughs) What? What? Uh, Can I just say that our amazing producers have given me stories where this has happened before. In 2014, BlackRock director Jonathan Paul Burroughs faced a similar controversy. The FCA banned him from working in financial services for dodging £42,550 in train fares. That sounds a little more serious. Wow. At the time, the regulator said that Burroughs had fallen short of the standards expected for someone in that position. Like 42 grand, though, that's like 
that's like four years of trains. That, that I mean, that that I can see. This can't be on the same scale unless he stole a lot of sandwiches. I was about to say, one hungry boy. Apparently, Japan's Mizuho Bank fired a London banker for stealing a five-pound bike part. Where do you steal that from? That you steal that from your friend? That's disgusting. But let's go back to the sandwiches. I mean, it, it's just like, I mean, was it not rock and roll enough in the bond trading department? Obviously not. So you needed a kick from something else and swiped some sandwiches. It's just nuts, really. I don't know. Part of me is like, he makes a million pounds, therefore he should just like nip out to Pratt. Do you know what I mean? But then the other we part We pay is, you enough. Go buy like yeah, But then the part of me is like, why does Citigroup care about this? Like, dude takes us like just give him a sandwich you know i mean if he runs all like i can only think this can't be about the sandwich do you know like when when you have an argument with somebody about something really silly and it's not really about that thing it's about all the other take your favorite pencil exactly it's like you took my sandwich but it was really about the thing they did six months ago right like i can only think city group are like you know unless unless they actually stole from a canteen operated by a third party and the third party insisted that okay yeah I, I mean, just made that up, though. Yeah. Because I am completely distracted by something that just flashed up uh, from our amazing producers. This is not a one-off thing. Apparently, traders have been known. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting now from a report from a former analyst who um, recounted some of his more, most outrageous experiences at a hedge fund. This is amazing. Mm. Uh, a w- the whistleblower said that somebody stole two dozen muffins a day. Wow. That's a fat boy. Keeping Playboy stock to get invited to the mansion. <laughs> Breaking into slap fights in the office. I'm pretty sure I've seen that in a movie. Flying to Bermuda for an hour every month to sign papers. Smashing multiple Bloomberg keyboards in relative frequent fits of rage. Oh, we've all been there. I still think that the sandwiches win. I mean, this this is essentially the the story of Wolf of Wall Street, isn't it? Really, but he wouldn't have stolen the sandwich. That's, though. He would have true. set the canteen on fire. <laughs> I'm, I'm presuming sandwich is now a metaphor for something that I don't understand. But I so mean, the, this is just the, bizarre. The obvious question that is being raised here is why do executives earning seven figure paychecks uh, feel that they need to swipe a sandwich mm-hmm. or dodge a trade and fair. But more to the point and to, to David's earlier point, and I'm trying to be serious about this, but I'm struggling because the muffins have made my day. What is the appropriate response to something like this? Does this feel disproportionate? This person is still allegedly um, guilty, which means that whatever investigation is either pending or inconclusive, and yet he has been named by both the BBC and now us. Um what is appropriate if I'm, he just stole, stole a like ham and cheese sandwich? I mean, I mean, I, I caught somebody like taking like ten jaffa cakes from our uh, our kitchen earlier. Was on. that like, Naz? Uh, uh, Naz will not be named, but yes. Um, so, but, but do you know what I mean? It's like I, I don't know. I can only presume it's again. It, this cannot possibly be. If this guy is like killing it at Citibank, I, this cannot possibly be the only reason why they're getting rid of this. I dude. completely agree. I feel like I want to know more about this guy's character before I pass judgment. Because if it's like a little bit of just mischievous stealing a little cheese sandwich, then I can get over it. Yeah. But if it's like some kind of ludicrous entitlement. Then well, so my, my mum would probably tell you that um, if you was expected to pay for the sandwich, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Um, whereas taking all the Jaffa cakes just meant there wasn't one for me, which is how he knows about it because I complained. Who <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> all the Jaffa cakes? So I think there is an element of of, of morality. Yeah. If if it was a sandwich that somebody was expected to get paid for, then freaking pay. Um, but on a on a slightly different point, and and and. 
to, to your point, Lois, his character, we don't know anything about him, but this story might get forgotten, but the chap has a, a pretty unusual name. It will come up in background checks. Is he now unemployable in both catering and banking? If he's been earning a million pounds a year, I think he's probably okay. Well, it actually said he was making a million pounds a year, so he was not the most successful of traders, right? That's true. But um, I don't know, maybe like in the next job, he just should negotiate his contract. Like, um, like and a, a sandwich. Yeah, like a bagel yeah. every day. Like if muffins I, for lunch, you know. I'm allowed to once a month um, go to Waitrose and check my manchego cheese as loose onions. Yeah, and like, you can let me get away exactly, from that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I wonder if there's a there's a thing where you get so big and so powerful where you just want that thrill. Like there is like, there is like a thing of like people doing shoplifting not because they have to. When I'm a rider. Yeah, exactly. Just because it's like example. the you know, just get the get the heart rate. Do you going. think he's sitting, or rather, he will be sitting there on Monday night listening to FinTech Insider, going, "I didn't steal it. The canteen was closed. I was working late. I was really hungry. I would pay for it tomorrow." Maybe. If that's the case, let me know. I'm interested in your character. Yeah, if that's the case, like email us seriously. Yeah, dude, I'll take you for a subway. It'd be great. <laughs> uh, by the way, for full disclosure, I used to run credit at City, though in Asia, I have eaten sandwiches in the very same canteen here in London. Oh. So I, I have a did you pay for, for it? Were you ever tempted? Of course. But the only thing I would say, so I totally agree, David, we just need to know more about the context, right, of, of, of what happened. Uh, but on the point of like, you know, people doing it for a thrill, because there are, maybe this guy did, maybe he didn't, right? Um, I think there's a lack of sense of purpose in the industry, right? Like, uh, whenever I speak to former colleagues or people come to me and say, oh, you, you know, you made the jump into, you know, fintech, how cool is that? Everybody seems to have this wet dream that fintech is this amazing thing. The reality is that, and I went through that adjustment factor, it is brutal, right? Um, the reality is that you realize that you, you're not in touch with the real world. And and so you you need an adjustment, and maybe for this guy, for the right or the wrong, you will get an adjustment on the back of this, and it's, it's actually a good thing. It. If you're listening, it is a good thing. Trust me, call me, we can talk about it. Right? Yeah, don't steal sandwiches also. Children, do not steal sandwiches. No stealing, guys. Okay, well, this wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about you? David? Um, neat.hk, and that's our website, or david at neat.hk. Fantastic. Lois? So you can find out more about Nationwide's partnership strategy by searching for NBS Ventures on Google or Twitter. And if I can, while I have the ears of some avid podcast listeners, I just want to plug uh, my new podcast series, Associated, which is to broaden access to venture capital. So you can find us on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And we're going to interview associates and operators and people you don't usually hear from in venture capital. It's very cool. Very much mm. worth checking it out, actually. I've seen a lot of the stuff that you guys have been doing on, on social about actually promoting it. So, uh, yeah, definitely go check that out, guys. Thank you. Sam? Um, yeah, uh, if you're in Canary Wharf, um, hit me up um, at the WeWork there. We're with um, TSB. Um, and um, otherwise, just find me on LinkedIn, Samuel Athey, or check out bipit.com. And uh, David? I will be in your local pret stealing sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> or if not, you can find me on LinkedIn. As for me, I'm on LinkedIn, Leader Glyptis, or at Leader Glyptis on Twitter, and I will be by the Jaffa Cake Jar in the 11FS kitchen. Nice. What do you think of today's stories? Did you actually steal that sandwich? Let us know on all social platforms. Just reach Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you for listening and goodbye.